Well, that's the story, a story that most of us are familiar with on some level, and now we're invited to slow down and to look at this story. So let me invite you to open up God's Word with me uh, to the second book of the Bible, the book of, of Exodus. We're in Exodus chapter 1 today as we begin uh, a new message series. You can find this text on page 44 of a Pew Bible. But today we begin this new series uh, from the opening chapters of the book of Exodus, and our series is titled Unforgettable. Uh, indeed, this is an unforgettable story, but it's more than just that. You see, to God, His plans are unforgettable. He will not forget them. And to God, His promises are unforgettable, and to God, His people are unforgettable, even when it feels otherwise, even when it feels as if He is silent. So let me invite you to look at the Word with me. And as we look at the Word, let's be led by the Lord. So as you find your place there in Exodus chapter 1, let me uh, invite you to join me standing, whether in body or in spirit, for the reading of God's holy Word. Exodus chapter 1, we'll look at the whole chapter together today. The Bible reads this way, it says, These are the names of the sons of Israel who went to Egypt with Jacob, each with his family, Reuben, Simeon, Levi, and Judah. Issachar, Zebulun, and Benjamin, Dan, and Naphtali, Gad, and Asher. The descendants of Jacob numbered 70 in all. Joseph was already in Egypt. Now Joseph and all his brothers and all that generation died, but the Israelites were exceedingly fruitful. They multiplied greatly, increased in numbers, and became so numerous that the land was filled with them. Then a new king, to whom Joseph meant nothing, came to power in Egypt. Look, he said to his people, the Israelites have become far too numerous for us. Come, we must deal shrewdly with them or they will become even more numerous. And if war breaks out, we'll join our enemies, fight against us and leave the country. Verse 11, so they put slave masters over them to oppress them with forced labor. And they built Python and Ramesses as store cities for Pharaoh. But the more they were oppressed, the more they multiplied and spread. So the Egyptians came to dread the Israelites and worked them ruthlessly. They made their lives bitter with harsh labor and brick and mortar and with all kinds of work in the fields. In all their harsh labor, the Egyptians worked them ruthlessly. The king of Egypt said to the Hebrew midwives, whose names were Shifra and Pua, When you are helping the Hebrew women during childbirth on the delivery stool, if you see that the baby is a boy, kill him. But if it is a girl... Let her live. The midwives, however, feared God and did not do what the king of Egypt had told them to do. They let the boys live. Then the king of Egypt summoned the midwives and asked them, Why have you done this? Why have you let the boys live? The midwives answered Pharaoh, Hebrew women are not like Egyptian women. They are vigorous and give birth before the midwives arrive. So God was kind to the midwives, and the people increased and became even more numerous. And because the midwives feared God, he gave them families of their own. And Pharaoh gave this order to all his people, Every Hebrew boy that is born you must throw into the Nile, but let every girl live. Would you bow with me in prayer? Father, this morning we come before you and we thank you for being God over all, for being mighty and majestic, for being the almighty maker of heaven and earth, and Lord, for being a God who speaks to us through your word. So, Father, speak now, for we are listening. Lord, guide us by the presence, the power of your Spirit, that we might rightly understand the truths of your Word and 
apply them to our lives so that we might walk with you. And it's in the name of Jesus we pray. Amen. Church, you may be seated. As we read these opening verses, this opening chapter of the book of Exodus, there are a number of things, a number of uh, descriptions uh, that allude back to the book that precedes this, the book of Genesis. The listing of the sons of Israel by name. Uh, The reminder that Joseph and his brothers are in, in Egypt, a foreign land. It's really as if Moses, the human author of this text, is telling us that this is a sequel to what has already been written, a continuation of the same story. It's not a new story. In fact, in the original language of the Old Testament, the first word of Exodus is literally the conjunction and. Most of our English translations don't translate that. A few of them do. King James Version does. New American Standard Bible does with the word now. Now, these are the names of the sons of Israel. But we come to verse 6, and the tone suddenly shifts. Without any dialogue or detail, Exodus chapter 1, verse 6, we read, Now Joseph and all his brothers and all that generation died. Gone. Dead and buried. The context of God's word after spending 38 chapters on four generations of people, Abraham and Isaac, Jacob and Joseph, now the story of this family all but goes silent. And sure, we're told in this chapter about uh, their descendants' multiplication and their oppression, but the narrative is moving in light years compared to Genesis. Generations come and generations go in slavery in Egypt. Where is God? What is he up to? What's going on when God feels silent? Are the Israelites during this season, this time, are are they worshiping him? Are they worshiping Yahweh, the God of their fathers? Is God blessing them? Is he leading them? Is he speaking to them? See, he has made promises to Abraham and to Isaac and to Jacob about inhabiting their own land, about becoming a nation, and about blessing all the nations of the world. Why isn't it happening? What's taking so long? Has God forgotten them? I wonder, have you ever felt that way? Have you ever felt like God has forgotten you? Have you ever felt like God was silent when you needed him to speak to you? You needed to hear his voice. Exodus chapter 1 declares that even when God feels silent, he is working for our good and his glory. Friends, even when God feels silent, even when we perceive him to be silent, he is at work. He is working for our good and for his glory. I know it doesn't feel like it. I know it doesn't feel like God is working for our good and for his glory and your cancer. I know it doesn't feel like it in the family turmoil. I know it doesn't feel like when the pain of arthritis uh, keeps you from wanting to get out of the bed in the morning or when hurricanes destroy homes and disrupt lives. The truth is that God often feels silent to us, but even then He speaks. God is a God who speaks. I don't know if you know this or not, but feelings are deceptive. They're not always accurate. Feelings are important. It's part of what it means to be human, but we should not build our lives upon our feelings. And according to the Word of God, even when God feels silent, He is working for our good and for His glory. In the midst of despair, 
God helps, God hears, and God comforts. The text that we heard earlier this morning, Psalm 121, I lift up my eyes to the mountains. Where does my help come from? My help comes from the Lord. Not from anywhere else. My ultimate help comes from the Lord. It comes from the maker of heaven and earth. He will not let your foot slip. He who watches over Israel will, uh, will neither slumber nor sleep. The Lord watches over you. The Lord is your shade at your right hand. The sun will not harm you by day nor the moon by night. The Lord will keep uh, watch over you and keep you from all harm. I'm losing my place here. He will watch over your life. The Lord will watch over your coming and going both now and forevermore. You see, friends, God never sleeps. God never slumbers. He's always awake. He always hears. And He's always at work. Church, God is completing His redemptive plan. God is a God with a plan. He's a God with a plan of redemption, a plan of salvation, and He is working to complete that plan. He is completing that plan. You see, there's a trajectory in the Bible towards redemption. There's a movement toward liberation from bondage, toward salvation. God rescues, He restores, and He reconciles even when it appears as if He's doing nothing. Those who know the Scriptures, those who know the Gospel, know that ultimately that is where this story is moving. The story of Exodus is moving toward the Gospel of Jesus and about that very Gospel, that very good news. Remember what Paul says in Galatians chapter 4, verse 4. He says, but when the set time had fully come, God sent His Son. In other words, when it was the exact right time, God fulfilled His promises. He sent His Son. In other words, redemption happens in God's way. And it happens in God's time. 400 years of silence in the biblical record here. Almost no information, nil, about the Israelites while they are in Egypt. God is silent. Or is He? Notice the repetitive emphasis on population growth here. You can't miss it. Now Joseph and all his brothers and all that generation died, verse 7, but the Israelites were exceedingly fruitful. They multiplied greatly, increased in numbers, and became so numerous that the land was filled with them. Verse 9, look, the new king of Egypt said to his people, the Israelites have become far too numerous for us. Come, we must deal shrewdly with them or they will become even more numerous, the text says. Verse 12, but the more they were oppressed, the more they multiplied and spread. Verse 20, so God was kind to the midwives. And what happened? The people increased and became even more numerous. I don't know if you've ever been to London. I imagine a few folks have been to London. But if you've ever been to London, the way that you get around in the city of London is on the tube, the underground uh, train station network. And when you're in uh, the tube station, you constantly hear these words, these instructions. You see them posted everywhere and you hear it come over the intercom, mind the gap. You've heard of that phrase, mind the gap, mind the gap. The longer you're in the station, the more you hear that meaning, watch out for the distance, watch out for the gap between uh, the, the, the waiting station and the train. Don't have an accident. Watch your step. Mind the gap, mind the gap over and over. The longer in the station, the more times you hear this repetition of rules because life hangs in the balance. The plan is to get people where uh, they need to go, not to destroy them in the process. And likewise, Exodus 1's almost ridiculous 
repetition of Israel's population explosion in an otherwise silent 400 years is God's way of reminding his readers that he is completing his redemptive plan, that he is not silent, that he is at work, that he is moving, that he is accomplishing, he is getting his people where they need to be. That is that he is doing in this family what he commanded of Adam, what he commanded of Noah, and what he promised Abraham. Remember the creation account, Genesis chapter 1. God creates. It was good. He creates. It was good. He creates. It was good. He creates mankind. It was very good. In Genesis chapter 1, verse 28, God blessed this first couple and he said to them, Be fruitful and increase in number. Fill the earth and subdue it. And then the story continues. And the whole worldwide population becomes exceedingly wicked. And so God sends the flood of judgment. He destroys the human race. Essentially, be Starting over with one family, the family of Noah. In Genesis chapter 9, verse 1, it says, Then God blessed Noah and his sons, saying to them, What? Be fruitful and increase in number and fill the earth. Genesis chapter 12 comes along, and God calls a man named Abram to set out and to trust him to go to the land that he's going to show him. And he says to Abram, I will make you into a great nation, and I will bless you. In other words, your descendants are are going to become a vast nation of people. Chapter 15, he makes that even more apparent. Verse 5, he took Abraham outside and said, Look up at the sky and count the stars, if indeed you can count them. In other words, good luck with that. And then he said to him, So shall your offspring be, as numerous as the stars in the sky. Then he goes on in Genesis chapter 15, verse 13, The Lord said to Abraham, Know for certain that for 400 years your descendants will be strangers in a country not their own, and that they will be enslaved and mistreated there, but then I'm going to deliver them, and I'm going to punish the people that enslaved them. In other words, God predicted this long beforehand. This did not catch him by surprise. This was part of his plan and his perfect providential timing. The story continues in Genesis chapter 35, verse 11, And God said to Jacob, Abraham's grandson, says, I am God Almighty. Be fruitful and increase in number. A nation and a community of nations will come from you and kings will be among your descendants. And then we fast forward to Exodus. And we come to Exodus chapter 12, verse 37. The Israelites journeyed from Ramesses to Sukkoth. There were about 600,000 men on foot besides women and children. What does it mean to be numerous? Or here he tells us. 600,000 just men. No doubt, counting women and children, well over a million Israelites enslaved in Egypt that are going to be delivered from bondage in Egypt. From 70 to 600,000 men. That's what God's been up to. Making an unlikely family into a nation. Blessing the offspring of Abraham so that through them he can bless all the nations of the world. You see, even when God feels silent, he is at work. Even when God feels silent, he is working for our good and for his glory. So, friend, believe his word. Believe his word. When he says he's going to do something, believe that he is going to accomplish it. He's trustworthy. Believe his word. For generations in Egypt, it appeared as if God's promises were pointless, as if his word was wasted, but he was at work. And he is at work. God is completing his redemptive plan, and through his redemptive plan, we learn that he cares, that he cares specifically for the weak and the oppressed. God cares for the weak and the oppressed. He's a God who cares for the weak and the oppressed. The story of Exodus is a story of God coming to the aid of the oppressed, repeated almost as much 
as the Israelites' multiplication is the oppression that they were under. Beginning in verse 11, so the Egyptians put slave masters to oppress them with forced labor. It says they worked them ruthlessly. They made their lives bitter with harsh labor. They work, they put them to work in the fields and all their harsh labor. And they worked them ruthlessly, it says again. And when that didn't restrain their reproductive growth of the Israelites, the king of Egypt made plans to kill all the baby boys and attempt to control their population and power by demonstrating his superiority over them. But God has other plans. God's ways are higher than our ways. God's power is stronger than earthly power. God has other plans. Let's skip forward to chapter 2 of Exodus. Exodus chapter 2, verse 23. If you look back at the text, it says the Israelites groaned in their slavery. They were miserable. They were weak. They were oppressed. They groaned in their slavery and they cried out and their cry for help because of their slavery went up to God. It says God heard their groaning and He remembered His covenant with Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. So God looked on the Israelites and was concerned about them. You see, God heard their cries for help. He remembered His covenant He saw them in their misery and He responded to their cries for help. And church, we too are called to imitate our God's character by caring for those in need. Imitate His character by caring for those in need. Of course, this is a story. The book of Exodus is a story. But it's more than just a random story. It's a story like all biblical stories that teaches us about the character of the God that we worship. The character of the God who saves The Exodus is a story of deliverance. It's a story of redemption. It's a story that declares that God is still the God of Abraham and that He has not forgotten His descendants. It's a story that declares that His plans to make them a people and give them a land will come about. It's a story of God meeting physical needs. And thus, as the people of God living in the world today, a world that still has many weak and oppressed people, we must imitate our God's character by caring for those with physical needs. Church, we are called to care for those with physical needs. You see, years later, after God delivers the Israelites from slavery in Egypt and prepares them to enter into the promised land, Moses would remind them who it is they serve, who it is that delivered them, and from where they came. Deuteronomy chapter 10, verse 18, Moses says to this generation of Israelites that's preparing to enter the promised land, he says, God defends the cause of the fatherless and the widow. He says, and he loves the foreigner residing among you, giving them food and clothing. He says, God is a God who cares for the weak. He's a God who cares for the oppressed. He's a God who cares for the orphan and the widow. He's a God who cares for the foreigner. Then verse 19, he says, and you are to love those who are foreigners. For you yourselves were foreigners in Egypt. And casting this forward, calling words of our own Savior, the Messiah, Jesus Christ, Christians, we must be a people who give cold water to the thirsty. We must be a people who provide food for the hungry. We must be a people who provide medicine for the sick. We must befriend the lonely. We must care for the orphan. We must work diligently to rescue the tens of millions of modern-day slaves who need to be rescued so they can know the Lord. Victims of sex trafficking and victims of forced labor who are so oppressed that not only do they fail to hear the good news of salvation in Jesus, but even if they heard it, would they really hear it? Friends, we must imitate the character of God. 
God delivers from physical slavery, delivered from bondage, liberated from bondage so that, and don't miss this, why did he do so? So that they may know him and worship him. You see, soon God would say to Moses in Exodus chapter 9, verse 1, he would say, Moses, go tell Pharaoh, let my people go so that they may worship me. Let them go, deliver them, release them from physical bondage so that they may know me. One pastor and commentator states it this way. He says, God's desire extended beyond liberating Israel from political, economic, and social slavery. He desired worshipers. He wanted Israel, like Adam, to know and worship him. Further, he wanted to use Israel to make worshipers from all nations. See, I think there's two potential dangers that... Uh, in interpretation and application of the book of Exodus when it comes to deliverance from slavery. One is to make it all about the physical. It's not all about delivering from physical oppression. But another danger is to make it all about the spiritual, all about a story of redemption in Christ. It is that. Ultimately, that is where the weight lies. But it demonstrates the character of God as one who delivers, who cares for those who are weak and oppressed, we must imitate his character. We must imitate the character of God by caring for those with physical needs, ultimately so that we may care for those with spiritual needs. Spiritual needs. After all, the Exodus is ultimately, church, about the gospel. It's about the good news. It's about forgiveness of sins. It's about everlasting life. It's a preparation for and a parallel to our deliverance from slavery to sin through Jesus our Lord. Philip Ryken, one of the great preachers of the 10th Presbyterian Church in Philadelphia, says it this way. He says, For Jews it is the story that defines their very existence, the rescue that made them God's people. For Christians it is the gospel of the Old Testament God's first great act of redemption. So brother, sister, we, we too, follower of Christ, we, we too were slaves. We were slaves to sin. Consumed with ourselves, overcome by weakness and oppression, in need of God's rescue. But as Paul says in Romans chapter 6, verse 17, Believer, thanks be to God that though you used to be slaves to sin, you have come to obey from your heart the pattern of teaching that has now claimed your allegiance. You have been set free. You know, salvation is liberation. It is freedom. It is being set free from sin and becoming a slave to righteousness, a slave to God and Jesus Christ. And thus it is our task, church. It is our privilege. It is our opportunity to share with the rest of the world that God is completing His redemptive plan. That He is at work. And that He is a God who cares for the weak. He's a God who cares for the oppressed. And that this same God who cares and redeems calls for our allegiance and our obedience. God calls for our allegiance and our obedience. I think we would miss part of the significance of this chapter. Part of the significance of this portion of the story if we forgot the story of Shifra and Pua. You know, kings love to be remembered. Part of the reason that you don't read about the Exodus in uh, the historical records of the Egyptian kings. It's common practice. A bit of propaganda, self-promoting propaganda. We see this all over the world. You don't read about this. So they, they wanted to leave a legacy. 
They wanted to be the best and the brightest. They wanted to be successful and powerful and prosperous. But in the almost 400 years that passed by in Exodus 1 after Joseph's generation dies, Shifra and Pua, two Hebrew midwives, are the only names mentioned in the rest of the chapter. Pharaoh's not a name. Pharaoh's a title for the king of Egypt. No mention of this Pharaoh's name. In fact, the failure to mention the specific Pharaoh's name in the biblical account has led many to, to, to question and debate when, when did the Exodus happen. And there's a couple different popular perspectives on that. But these two women, church, we are supposed to remember them. We are supposed to remember their allegiance to God above Pharaoh, to remember their obedience to Yahweh, even when it meant risking their very lives. Shifra and Pua. Don't forget their faithfulness to God. In fact, those are cool names. Anybody need a baby girl name? Here you go. In fact, don't miss out on saying these names. Repeat after me. Shifra and Pua. You got it. Shifra and Pua. One more time. That was not good. Shifra and Pua. Pastor Tony Merida writes, he says, these women did something for us. Because they rescued babies, we will be raised from the dead. How? If you do not have these women, you do not have, the, you do not have Moses, the Exodus, David, Mary, or Jesus. He says, Pharaohs wanted to be remembered. They built pyramids to be remembered. Yet the only names remembered are those who feared God. And protected life. You see, they trusted God. Even when he appeared silent. The text says twice that they feared God. Verse 17 and verse 21. They feared God, meaning they believed in him, they respected his authority, and they worshipped him alone. They believed that God is trustworthy. Friend, do you believe God is trustworthy? Do you believe God is trustworthy? Do you believe that he loves you and that he cares for you? He does. The story of Exodus chapter 1 reminds us that even when God feels silent, even when he feels distant, even when we don't hear his voice, he is a God who is at work. He is working for our good and for his glory. And because he is, church, we can trust in him. Trust in him. Are you trusting him? Is your faith in Him? Have you put your trust in God Most High, the God who is sovereign, the God who is Savior, the God who is majestic and transcendent, but also the God who is imminent and near, who comes to redeem and to rescue, who hears our cries for help and delivers us from slavery to sin through Jesus Christ, His Son, our Savior? Are you trusting in Him? He is worthy of your trust. Trust in Jesus today. If you don't know what it means to trust in Jesus, if you don't know what it means to repent and to put your faith in Jesus, don't leave this place today without having done so. In just a few moments, as we stand, as we sing, as we express our faith and devotion to to this God, if you don't know what that looks like, then know that that is uh, an appropriate time. Come find me down front here. We'd love to, to explain what it means to trust in Him, what it means to know Him, certainly after our service as well. But don't you leave today without trusting in Him. Maybe you are a believer. Maybe you are a child of God. Maybe you know that you've been saved by God's grace, but but you've been trusting in yourself more than Him. Trust in Him today. Confess that sin. Confess that you've wandered from faith in Him and that you are dependent upon Him and you're grateful for His provision in your life. Church, let's trust in Him today. Father, help us. 
Lord, help us to trust you. Like the words of a father in the New Testament, Lord, give us faith. Lord, we believe, but help us overcome our unbelief. Help us to believe in you more than we believe in anything else. Lord, help us to trust you and to live for you, to devote our lives to you, to stand upon the promises of your word, to believe that your word is is sure, it is certain, that you are faithful, that you are constant, that you care, that you are concerned, that you hear Christ for help and you come to the aid of your people. Lord, you have done so in the gospel of Jesus Christ. Lord, we believe this truth. May we stand upon it and proclaim it for your glory. It's in the name of Christ we pray. Amen.